The world is changing, and it's doing so at an ever-increasing rate. If you think back to your childhood, you would likely have trouble explaining to someone born in the last, say, 10 to 15 years how hard it was to do day-to-day things, and how many people were involved in helping you achieve your wanted outcomes. I remember following my mother to the bank. It was quite nice because they had this wonderful play area for kids with Legos and even small slip and slides. If you go into a bank now, you would be hard-pressed to find anything like that. Banks don't have nice play areas to ensure that customers' children have access to entertainment. Because now we can go to the bank on our phones. No physical visit needed. If you wanted to book travel, say 25 years ago, you went to a local ticket office. You bought yourself a ticket. Maybe they would even organize an hotel where you would stay, but they would have to call the hotel clerk and book a room manually. That is not the case anymore. If you want to go on a vacation, you can go to your computer. You can specify when you want to leave and when you want to come back and how much money you want to spend on it. The rest is taken care of for you. All of this is very convenient. But it also means that the travel agent and bank tellers in these stories are no longer spending their time serving us. And behind the scenes there are cleaners, gardeners, cooks and everyone else supporting the bank and the travel agency. No longer. If the trends that we have seen the last couple of years keep up, we haven't seen anything yet. Everything indicates that we're just experiencing the trembling first steps of transformation driven by exponential growth in computer power, available information and machine learning. We at Designing the Robot Revolution argue that this process is inevitable and necessary to tackle humanity's significant challenges like climate change and the lack of workforce due to an aging population. We must be mindful so that we don't just automate every process and every job without considering the consequences, without considering how it will affect real people and how we work and live. We asked Deceiver to weigh in on this. Deceiver works at Philips Healthcare as a service designer and has been a part of driving transformational change many times. How does she think about the mental shift people go through when asked to make a transformational change in how they work? I think, uh, boy, so there's, there's a bunch of things. I mean, so yes. So the thing that having gone through a lot of different transformation programs, Um, One of the things I'm always very explicit about is not everybody makes it. And that's not a bad thing. In a transformation program, you're talking about doing something new in a new way. And not everybody is suited to that. And so it's both in those people's and the company's best interest that they find something else to do. And, and, And I say that in a healthy way. You know, there's certain people that we're going to carry forward and are ready and excited to make that change. There's certain people that are going to kind of like come along for the ride and they'll do it. And then there's people that it's just not going to work. And for everybody, you want them to find a better place to be. And so in this sense, I apply the same thing to sales. You know, there are some salespeople who say, this is a better long-term situation for me. Sure, I don't get those like quick short-term hits, but... I can count on money coming in for a long time. And that's been always kind of one of the trade-offs with sales is like the hustle is real, right? Like if you want to get that paycheck, you got to hustle hard. And this is more how do you hustle in the right way so that you can keep getting a paycheck for a while. So there are going to be people that are like, yeah, like I am motivated by that. 
And then there are going to be the people who are like, no, like I'm going to hustle. I want that big hit. I'm going to, you know, go buy my boat and new car every year. And that's what they're motivated by. And so, you know, it's being really transparent around those people aren't in our future. And that's not a bad thing. They just aren't in, you know, it's just not in our interest or their interest that they keep working with us. You know, then there's the, the kind of that middle group of it's how do you help them transition? Um, and, and I think there, you know, it's, it is a lot of like education of how do you help position and message to them why this change is worth making? Um, I think at Phillips, and I don't think it's so different in other places, I think at Phillips, we actually have stronger customer poll than we do internal poll because customers have mentally made the transition. But back to that, like, um, you know, we've had a really successful business doing the way things they were, you know, so there's kind of like this grieving process that our company and certain roles have to go through. It's not sustainable, you know, that like every product company, you know, we see pressures on margins, we see pressures on competition, you know, we see the commoditization, like um, no news to anybody, <laughs> right? Right. But it's still a successful business and that's the perform piece. So kind of going through this, okay, we sort of have to mourn our loss. We have to, you know, we have to decide the change is inevitable. You know, there is that middle group where, where that is a painful process, but they will get there. So I find, and, and I guess I'm going to take this view more from an industry as a whole mm -hmm. than, than specific to Phillips. Yeah, yeah. I think there is, I find there is a give the benefit of the doubt to what else can somebody do? And so if I look at like some, uh, some roles that have, you know, traditionally been like very technical support, it may be a matter then of, you know, how are they getting more into like the creative problem solving space? How do they, how do they start to pick the support cases that they want to work on? You know, because we may have automated the Q and A, right? So mm -hmm. how do they then potentially update the knowledge base that is the Q and A? Or how do they, um, you know, confirm if a customer has self-serviced, you know, how do they confirm that the service was completed appropriately? Um, so I, I find that the idea that somebody loses their job, I think it's more that task may be changed and there are ine inevitably new tasks hmm. that come up. Um, you know, if you, even if you think about like chatbot things and now I'm like totally digressing. Right. Um, if you think about chatbot, it's based off of at some point, someone being able to say, this is the appropriate response. So are you having technical support people come in as experts to help inform those responses? Um, as you introduce new products, like you're not going to be able to automate the responses of support immediately because you just don't know what problems are going to come up. You know, so I think to me, it really is just there are new tasks or maybe there are different tasks that come out when you start automating things, not that the work as a whole goes away. Well, I mean, so, so a, a good example, one of the in the Phillips space, like we'll talk, we'll we offer service support contracts, technical support contracts. And you you have customers that kind of run the spectrum of how mature is their technical support organization. 
but I have seen customers that have the same level of maturity. So let's say they're both very high mature technical support organizations. Mm -hmm. So a hospital has their own like equipment repair team, super mature, Mm. super sophisticated. One of them will say, no, I want total control. I don't want Phillips coming in here and touching. This is my job. This is how I earn Mm -hmm. my value. And we'll have another customer that is as equally mature say, I have so many other things to do. I don't want this to be my problem. Hmm. So I don't find, you know, when we get into the discussions of, that's my job, you're not going to take my job away. I find there are just as many other people who are saying, please take that work off. I have other things that I would rather be doing. And if somebody can take that problem away from me, then absolutely, please take it away. My time is worth money and I will pay to have somebody else do that. Um, So I think I just really see, I I see it as a dichotomy, not a, or maybe ends of the spectrum is a better way to say it versus a one zero. Um, And and I think it's what I always look at is like, okay, so then those aren't targets. You know, if if they want that space, then they're they're not targets. And again, they'll continue to exist. That work will continue to go on. And we will still have plenty of customers that say, yes, please take my headache away. Please make this your problem. And I would rather coordinate efforts of what Phillips is doing than have to be the, the person responsible for that. And, and I would say the same in, you know, for our own internal as well. You know, there's a lot of things where we go to our field delivery teams that are interacting directly with customers. And they say things of like, yeah, I would love to not have to project manage and write timesheets. Great. Let's, let's automate that, right? Like that is a low value task that somebody with expertise is having to do. So how can we then build pre-built project plans that then they're spending time on customizing because they have the experience to know what needs to be adapted rather than, um, you know, and having that as a conversation with the customer of like, let's take our template and let's adjust this together versus like, okay, um, when was the last time I did something like this? And do I have to remove like a previous customer's name? And like, are we talking about PowerPoint or Excel? Like, these are things are like, go automate that, right? I want the pre-populated version that I'm tweaking versus the blank sheet that I'm developing from scratch. This conversation with Dean made me hopeful that we as a society will be able to manage the automation coming our way, in the short term at least. What if progress will be faster and we find ourselves in a situation where automation is replacing us rather than freeing us up to do more valuable work? We asked Matthias, an expert in robotics at Toyota Materials Handling, what his thoughts are on the challenges that would arise in a scenario like this. What will we do as people? Okay, we there is no lack of imagination what we could do, I, I guess. But but how will we then be financed? Uh, robots don't pay taxes, right? They work for free. Like here in Sweden, the, our whole tax system is built on us working, paying part of our taxes. Uh, but if we replace us in our working role with robots that don't pay taxes, then and we are gradually pushed to like, yeah, creative and fun stuff. Well, that's nice. But if that's not paid work, how do you um, how do you make uh, society come around? So that's a challenge, uh, I think, uh, to figure out uh, that because, uh, yeah, 
Of course, that's a sensitive question in the robotics industry. Don't tax us. <laughs> because, of, but, but you need to somehow, if the tax system is built on people paying taxes when they do their works, you need, a, you need to early on in this development loop, you need to figure out how you replace that then. If, yeah, uh, unless people always find something new to do, which we have been quite successful to do. But if you look back historically, like we, we used to be farmers, half of us used to be farmers here in Sweden. Um, and and we, we're not anymore, right? And we're still busy um, do, doing uh, valuable work that we get paid to do, even more uh, valuable work. So it, it, automating the farming industry has been really good. It, it, now we everybody has food and, and uh, we're, we're doing more, doing other things. But then um, that took a long time, that revolution, right? So you had like generations dying out that were just fa- farmers and you had new people that, were, that grew up and being native in doing something else. But since everything is moving faster and faster, the risk is that you you go to school and you learn something that becomes obsolete in your lifetime. Then you are essentially obsolete. How do you, you somehow need to make yourself relevant? And I think at this point in time, um, this shift is happening still so slow that most of us are able to shift. Like I, I think it was Fredrik Reinfeldt, our previous prime minister, that said, live until 100, uh, retire at 75, change work at 50, uh, educate until 25. So like the idea was that you'd make one shift in a lifetime. Yeah, but how long does that hold on? If this is moving faster and faster, at some point, yeah, f- maybe people can't, resettle fast enough anymore and if you don't then at that point have a system where the value generation is somehow redistributed in a way uh, yeah then you might have a problem like has has is there talk about um kind of having a kind of income tax on per robot and assessing the productivity of is is that a discussion in the robotics industry I'm, I think, yeah, I know for sure that there's been debate on it, but um, there is no such legislation in place. And I think there would be a, quite a strong lobby against it. But I think it's an important question to for society to consider um, long term. I mean, that, this is not a problem we need to fix today, but eventually um, we need to have either found a solution in, uh, in taxes in, in the same way as we do today and that we tax labor or we need to find some other way to uh, for society to be uh, financed. Um, and I don't have an opinion about it. It's just that uh, it needs to be done. After the short break, David and Jacob unpack the things Dee and Matthias talked about. If you want to support Designing the Robot Revolution, please tell a friend about this episode and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.
Wow, Jacob, that was really interesting. I mean, so many points for us to touch upon there. The, the top of mind for me, really, that from the two standout things for me are this point around tax and how yeah. on earth we're going to adapt a tax system that's been designed largely around income tax and human labor to account for that labor being possibly in the mechanized and in the hands of very few actors without it taking a huge hit on the tax. And then the, the other thing I thought was um, talking about the, when the human side of transformation, how organizations, not everyone is going to come along on the journey. There are going to be some people who are who are primed for it, who are excited about it. And then there's going to be some that are just not fit for it at all. But I think it's really interesting what was said about that middle group who aren't necessarily the kind of yeah. on the front line, but are able to come along on the journey and how you take those people along on the journey. So there's so much to unpack here around the human side of all this transformation that's yeah. going on. Because when we do these big changes, when we create these new systems and innovation that, that changes things dramatically, it, it's going to affect people. And I think it's easy to, to forget that. And I think the, the grander perspective needs to be addressed. I think let's start, let's start somewhere. Let's start from, from behind and talk about what you brought up with the tax system. To me, I, I, I started thinking about that it actually goes deeper than just the tax system because we, we not only do we base our our welfare and the state income of labor but also our individual income comes from labor in most cases so how do we make like how how do we even start to think about a society where where people don't have to work to get production done um that's that's transformative i i'm almost hesitant to even start to mention things because i, I, I it's very easy to to become to 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 it's difficult to talk about this and not sound very marxist to be honest yeah but how do we how do we relate to a society where we have in in big quotation marks infinite production and no labor uh, that is a very uh, remarkably different from what we have now yeah and universal basic income again that's always thrown as a potential the risk is that a very small number of corporations sucks own, all the benefits. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, one of our previous episodes, I mean, just it comes to mind is it was around um, robo journalism. And mm. I read this article saying how Google could replace 95% of the copywriting. Right. So Google could end up actually doing all of the. Um, content production and publication that's currently done by all of the news media right historically we've what we've seen is we've we've automated things such as all of agriculture like right? it used to be that is it 70 or 50 percent of all people were like they, they had their work in agriculture this is not the case anymore it's a percentage that is i think in the below 10 percent easily and we found new stuff to do 
we have nurses, we have doctors, we have service designers is for sure something that couldn't exist in, a, in an agricultural economy. Um, so we have found new things to do, but I think the fear is that it's going to be increasingly hard to come up with value-adding things to do as we automate the world more and more. And I think it's something that, for now, maybe think tanks can can think about and start to come up with solutions to, to this problem. But it is something that we, we're going to have to reckon with. We're going to have to come up with political and societal solutions to, to this so that we can distribute the... The, the vast amounts of wealth that is possible if if automation comes to 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 its its logical conclusion to me at least definitely there's that societal level um but there's also with the people left behind but there's also an as an organization right where there's the people left behind if you don't do it right now i'm all for not trying to, it's the incorrect approach to try and bring everyone along on the journey because that's mission impossible. You're better off saying, do you know what? This just isn't right for you anymore. So don't, I'm not arguing for trying to bring everyone along. Right. But that middle group is what worries me because we need, I believe, we need to try and bring that middle group along. So the the, the, the kind of, the innovators, the people who are excited about it, they're the ones driving it. They're going to be fine. The the people who have absolutely no interest and are dead set against it, fine. Maybe it's better for them to go anywhere else. But I believe the biggest proportion are the, the big middle group. Right. And how as an organization do you do your best to bring as many of them along as possible? And that involves culture, investment and education. Right. But it's also user experience. I think that's a big key to this is make it painless. Make sure that you look at how people are reacting to it. What are the difficulties? How can we alleviate some of these pains? Uh, There are so many examples of technology that used to be horrible. A computer used to be terrible. Uh, I think most can remember how people used to talk about computers when they were or people of i guess our age and older can remember when computers had command prompts and you had to to essentially ask the computer to do things via very specifically typing in commands to ask it to do things and you couldn't it wasn't natural language you actually had to be completely correct in your how you enter that information i think the same is true here so yep. we, we automate things and, and we have to make sure that we create what is essentially a graphical user interface, but for whatever task it is we automate. And that's one of the keys, I think. So so just pure UX stuff, I think, is going to mm. be really important. So whether it's at a societal level or whether it's at an organizational level, the those innovating and scaling yep. automation uh they need to look at how how to make that experience viable and um, something that that middle group actually wants to yeah. be involved in. And I think one of the things that we have to do in order to prepare for it, but also to do it, is to talk more about it. We have to 
come together with legislators and industry and talk about the societal effects. So if this happens, if the scenarios come to fruition, then we, we have a plan to, to handle that because it's becoming more and more likely that it's going to be disruptive. Uh, and the same is true in organizations. So let's let's talk about it. Let's bring the concerns that our employees have to surface and discuss it and and have like take it seriously and I think we'll we'll be fine. And we at designing the robot revolution will keep talking about it. So please if you feel like this episode has been valuable to you, uh tell a friend. That's the actually the best way that you can help the podcast is to Tell someone that this is really interesting and something they should listen to. If you want to support us even more, you can follow us on LinkedIn. And you can also follow us on your favorite podcast platform. For now, this has been Designing the Robot Revolution. My name is Jacob Magnol. And I'm David Griffith-Jones. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.